Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, and I'm here with my co-host, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people. Our mission is to bring experts, legends, and hidden gems from within and surrounding the game to one place so we can share their stories and insight with you. You'll hear the stories behind the game, including trials and tribulations, setbacks, wins, losses, and lessons. Before we jump into this episode, Phil and I need your help. Take a moment to smash that follow and subscribe button, and then go leave us a review. The follow and subscribe button is that little plus sign on the top right if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And that's what's going to help us to reach as many people as possible and share with you how we can all be living a basketball strong life. That is what Phil and I are here to do. So we appreciate it and thank you in advance. This isn't just a podcast. It's a community and it's a movement. And we want it to feel that way. So be sure to visit us at www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. And you can also email us directly at Tim, that's T-I-M, at basketballstrongpodcast.com. We want to hear from you, so take us up on that. If you subscribe, give us a review, and drop us an email, we'll send you a Basketball Strong t-shirt and then automatically enter you in our rolling premium prize giveaway contest. And I'm telling you, you won't want to miss that. Now, let's go get Basketball Strong. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to shout out one of the 70 plus reviews that we've received on Apple Podcasts. We're only a few weeks into the launch of this podcast, and yet we see the five-star reviews rolling in. Phil and I are grateful for each and every one of you who have taken the time to drop a review because that's how we are going to spread the word and help people to become basketball strong. There is one review from this week that stood out at an all-star level. TA94 wrote five stars, a slam dunk. In a world of Hollywood Space Jam, the Basketball Strong podcast is refreshingly hoop dreams. Gritty, human, unscripted, self-effacing, but most importantly, real. Tim and crew heaved this one up from the 28 hash and got nothing but net. This podcast is a slam dunk for not just fans of the game of basketball, but for anyone interested in storytelling and tales of the human heart and mind. TA94, thank you so much. That was a game winner. I also noticed that you went a step beyond that and you sent an email to me at tim at basketballstrongpodcast.com and I will get you your Basketball Strong t-shirt in the mail ASAP. That also enters you automatically for the rolling specialty prize giveaway contest and the prize that we are up for this month is a signed copy of The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality by today's guest, Mike Sielski. Let's talk about what Mike will bring to us on today's show and what Mike is all about. Mike Sielski is the heralded author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. To get your copy of the book, go to theriseofkobebook.com. Mike is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of three books. 
He was voted the country's top sports columnist in 2015 by the Associated Press Sports Editors. In this episode, Mike tells rarely heard details about how the lost Kobe interview cassette tapes that became a backbone of the book were uncovered and handed over to him. How Kobe's high school coach, Greg Downer, found a way to challenge a young Kobe toward better leadership. The process of research and fact gathering that went into writing this book and what he was surprised to learn about a young Kobe. Why many general managers or talent evaluators did not see the Hall of Fame talent in the young high schooler. The sacrifices that a young Kobe made in his pursuit of immortality. Numerous stories and anecdotes that have yet to be heard by many from the Lower Marion chapter of Kobe's rise to becoming one of the greatest players of all time and more. Let's get into the show. Mike, tell us about the cassette tapes and what seemed to be the catalyst or one of the catalysts for taking this idea and turning it into a book. Sure, Tim. So back in 1996 and into 1997, uh, Kobe collaborated with a friend and confidant of his named Jeremy Treatman, who was kind of an assistant coach at Lower Marion High School and also the program's media relations liaison, basically. He was the guy who handled all of Kobe's interviews. If he wanted to get to Kobe or anybody with the team, he kind of had to go through Jeremy and he handled the press conference and all that stuff. So Jeremy got the idea of collaborating with Kobe on a memoir. It would be called um, My Freshman Year in the NBA. And so the two of them sat down for this series of interviews uh, late in Kobe's senior year, throughout the summer after his senior year, and even into his first season with the Lakers, talking about his senior season and his relationship with his parents and the first time he met Michael Jordan and the first time he met Magic Johnson and interview after interview after interview. And Jeremy thought he really had something going with respect to a book project. Uh, as it turns out, the project fell through. Uh, couldn't get a publisher. You know, Kobe's taking off in his career, more demands on his time. So Jeremy puts the tapes in a box and kind of forgets about them. So fast forward to a couple months, month or two after Kobe's passed away. I've known Jeremy a long time. I've known him 25 years. Um, so I reached out to him after I got the idea and said, you know, can you help me? And he said, of course. And he gave me transcripts of some of the tapes. They were kind of written as if they were um, ch book chapters in Kobe's voice. Uh, but he said, I don't know where the tapes are. I haven't been able to find them since 1996, 1997. Mm. So, okay. So I go along and I'm working on my research and my, and writing the, the manuscript and all that. And then on December 22nd, 2020, uh, 8.30 at night, I get a phone call from Jeremy. He is moving from his townhouse in Philadelphia to Boca Raton, Florida, and he is cleaning out his garage. And he says, Mike, I found the tapes. <laughs> and I almost dropped the phone. Um, right. the next I was about morning. to say, we're, we're going to cut the interview right there because that's probably, as, <laughs> yeah. as a fellow writer and researcher, um, yeah, Goosebumps isn't even covering it right now. Yeah. So the next morning, I threw a mask on and drove over to Jeremy's townhouse and went into his garage. And he handed me a giant Ziploc bag of about 20 micro cassettes, oh including um, the recorder that he had used to tape all the interviews. And the recorder was so old. It didn't even have the panel to the battery hole in the back of it. <laughs> you had to tape the batteries in. 
but it still worked and the tapes were still listenable. And so over the next month or so, that was what I did. I listened to Kobe's voice um, and listened to what he had to say and then, you know, wove his perspectives and insights uh, from when he was 17, 18, 19 years old into the narrative of the book. That's amazing. That's that's Um, incredible. How did you kind of pair that with, you know, a lot of your, we've read a lot of your feature pieces and and they're really well researched. And how did you weave other research, other interviews, other insights you've gleaned over the years um, in with those tapes and kind of strike that balance between maybe the macro picture of what's going on in the NBA at the time. And obviously a bit of a contrast to how it is now with the one and done and now, obviously, some folks like Kaminga coming in from, from the G League or maybe some kids coming in, taking the, the ball route overseas. So how did you kind of, uh, one, balance the micro and macro and two, kind of weave in these other sources with this, as you said, treasure trove of, of micro cassettes and transcripts? Well, Phil, I wanted the book to be intimate anyway, right? I was, I was homing in on a specific period of Kobe's life, and I wanted to bring that period to life. So the tapes were obviously a help in that regard. I could get a sense of what Kobe was thinking as these things were happening. You know, in in an odd way, the tapes were a better resource. And yet, you know, I feel weird saying this, but even if Kobe had still been alive and I were doing this book and I interviewed him about 1996 and 1997, he'd only be remembering what he thought and felt at that time. And the tapes actually gave me his thoughts and insights, you know, in the moment. So, so there was that. There was the, the other research I had done, which was, you know, uh, more than a hundred interviews. I spent hours uh, looking at old yearbooks from Lower Marion High School. I went to the Lower Marion Historical Society and and spent a couple of days. The the Historical Society had all the back copies of the student newspaper from Kobe's years there. So that allowed me to confirm details, find some more nuggets, things like that. That was really a treasure trove. Um, And so you just kind of weave it all together, all the while keeping in mind that there are these bigger themes, as you said, that you want to touch on, right? Like Kobe going straight to the NBA from high school. You have to put that in its context of its time and how, in a way, kind of revolutionary that was. Yeah, Kevin Garnett had done it the year before, but Kevin Garnett was seven feet tall and a man when he was 18 years old. Kobe was six foot six and a guard, and um, there were a lot more people doubting that he could do it. So um, I had him on these tapes talking about some of those things. I had him kind of reliving his senior season. And fortunately, through all the other research I had done, I had a whole lot of detail and different perspectives on the narrative of that season and that time in Kobe's life. And the tapes themselves allowed me to augment that. I didn't have to guess what Kobe said or thought in a particular moment. I had it. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, yeah, as a researcher, you you crave that. You don't want to have mm. to guess. You want to know. And the tapes allowed me to know. Yeah, and yes. I mean, for anyone that doesn't know the process of writing a microcosm history, essentially, is what you've done here. Um I, I was lucky enough to do research at the Truman Presidential Library, and, th- and they told me now, even though we're talking about a big book that was more magisterial and sweeping in, in David McCullough's Truman, that, you know, arguably our greatest living historian of that generation, he would show up with his wife and they'd stay at a little hotel in Independence, Missouri for two weeks every summer. And then they wouldn't hear from him for maybe 11 and a half, almost 12 months. And then the archivist would get an email 
saying, hey, um, we're coming back again at our usual time. Would you be able to pull these boxes and files for me, file folders, and then two more weeks? And this went on for seven or eight years. And so without this treasure trove, I mean, you would have been able to, I'm sure, come up with a very good book, but it would have been this really more of a patchwork quilt that could have taken you a decade, maybe. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, the, the, it's interesting that you bring up uh, McCullough and the Truman book. W one of the models in my own mind, not that this is a point of comparison between me and the person I'm about to mention, but um, I'm a big Eric Larson fan. Um, I read As all of I. his books. <laughs> yeah. And um, the most recent one he did, The Splendid in the Vile, is all about one year in the life of Winston Churchill. How does he, how does he lead the British through the Blitz? And... That was the same kind from a structural standpoint and a research standpoint. That was one of my models was, you know, I don't need to tell the whole story of Kobe's life. That's not what I'm about in this book. I need to know it and be familiar with it. But that's not where my research and the narrative is going to center on. So you want to make it as uh, as tangible. You, you want people to be able to kind of feel it in a way. And yeah. so I, I, I focused more on you know, the atmosphere at Lower Marion High School and the atmosphere in the gym, you wanted, you wanted people to get that sense. Um, you know, what was, what was Kobe's house like both, you know, on at 1224 Remington road in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, or in the Pacific Palisades. I did one interview, um, with Arne Tellum's assistant, um, you know, Alyssa Grabow, who described for me what the inside of the house smelled like when Kobe and Joe and Pam Bryan and the whole family were living there. Yeah, you, you can't put a price on those kind of details. No, it's gold. Right? And to hear it from the horse's mouth at the time. I think that's with the, with the tapes, that is the big differentiator that this just makes this so unique. And in terms of one thing I'd love to hear from you, Mike, is talk a little bit about why in many ways you're, you are uniquely qualified to tell this story because of the overlap of where you were in those mid nineties and, and where Kobe was geographically and in, in your life and, and all of that. So I am three years older than Kobe. Um, and I grew up just outside of Philadelphia in a suburb called upper Dublin, which is very similar geographically, um, sociologically, racially, economically to lower Marion township where Kobe grew up. And then I, for college, I went to LaSalle university um, and I started there in the fall of 1993, which is exactly the same time that Joe Bryant, Kobe's dad, became an assistant basketball coach there. So as Kobe was making his rise at Lower Marion and you were hearing more and more about him, he became a bigger and bigger discussion topic on campus at LaSalle University. There was this hope mm. that he would decide to play college basketball for his dad at LaSalle and be kind of the savior of our college basketball program. You know, the, pro the program had had this kind of rich tradition, but had fallen on hard times, you know, kind of just as I arrived. I kind of, right. in some way, kind of karmically blamed myself for this. I came along <laughs> and all of a sudden the program went to pot. But um, we were all, all the undergrads and alumni and people on campus, this was a big thing. Like maybe we'll get Kobe. And so you're watching his progression from afar and you're thinking, oh my God, this is going to be incredible. Um, and then to, to, to have that background living and growing up in the Philadelphia area and then to spend so much of my writing career as a sports writer and sports columnist in and around Philadelphia. I mean, I've been at the Philadelphia Inquirer since 2013, but before that I worked at 
you know, several suburban Philadelphia newspapers for more than 15 years. Um, so it's, I remember I would say more than 10. So it's, I'm steeped in this. I know the right. history. I know the, I know the area. I know the people involved. And it just, it seemed to me that this was a story that resonated a lot, both in my area, um, because it was familiar to a lot yes. of people, but also would resonate to a broader audience because they weren't as familiar with it and would want to know about it. Yes. Steeped in it is exactly the right word. I, it, it just sums it all up. Did you ever profile Kobe's father for the college newspaper or did you ever write a story on him once you started working newspapers out of school? So I got the chance to meet and talk to Joe Bryant once while I was in college. Um, I was a writer for the student newspaper, but this interview was uh, during Kobe's senior year, late in Kobe's senior year my junior year, and it was for the university TV station. And I was the co-host of a program on the TV station about the basketball team. And the one stipulation that we got when we interviewed Joe and the head coach at the time, Speedy Morris, was that Joe would do the interview, but we could not ask him about Kobe. So the very got thing it. that we would have wanted to press him <laughs> yeah. about, we couldn't ask. Um, I wrote a little bit about Kobe for the student newspaper while I was at uh, LaSalle. And then uh, I worked for a group of suburban of, of newspapers in suburban Philadelphia. And any time that, that allowed me to cover the 2001 NBA finals, pretty much any time Kobe was in town or there was something big going on with him, whether it was good or bad, uh, I would write about it. In 2007, um, the Lakers came to play the Sixers. And this is actually in the afterword of the book. And I got the chance to talk to Kobe afterwards because I'd kind of heard through Jeremy Treatment and a couple other people that a rumor that Kobe was considering uh, ending his career with the Sixers playing in Philadelphia to finish his career. And so I asked him about that uh, in the locker room after the Sixers beat the Lakers in Philadelphia. Um, but I wasn't as tight with him. I didn't cover him as a beat reporter or in LA very much um, because we were of the same generation. Um, I, I didn't get the chance to really cover him while he was in high school. Sure. Sure. And as we're, as we're on the, topic of the process of how the book came together and what you went through to get that there was obviously and and rest in peace there was the moment of Kobe's death during that process can you talk about what that moment was like and open that up for you and in being in the middle of this project and having such ties to him as a person him as a player and and telling his story yeah well I didn't I didn't really pursue the project until after he died. Uh, on the it. day he died, um, I was actually driving my two sons, who were eight and five at the time. Uh, we were hustling back home so that my eight-year-old could get changed because uh, he had a basketball game. Wow. And uh, I was stopped at a traffic light and looked at my phone, which I know you're not supposed to do, and looked at my Twitter feed and saw the news and said, what? Out loud in the car. And it kind of shook up my eight-year-old. He knew I was surprised unpleasantly about something. Right. And so we got home and I told him what had happened. And, and then, you know, over the next month or so, I ended up writing several columns about Kobe. The Tuesday after his death, I went to Lower Marion. I saw the, the makeshift memorial that was there outside the gymnasium. I listened to Greg Downer, his high school coach, give a press conference, you know, that was very emotional with a lot of Lower Marion people there. Um, and that, that aftermath was what kind of gave me the idea for the book because you could see it was kind of a reaffirmation of what he had meant and still meant to that community. Um, you know, it, it was, 
you guys know this from reading the book and just from being familiar with Kobe, like his relationship with Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area was always kind of fraught Yes, because Philadelphia is so parochial and Kobe, even as a young guy, young kid thought himself as like his, his aspirations were beyond Philadelphia. You know, he wanted to play for the Lakers. He thought he wanted to move on past lower Marion in the Philadelphia area. He had said in 2001, he wanted to cut the hearts out of the Sixers and their fans and the finals and, you know, all this stuff that got Philadelphians, you know, kind of angry, which is ironic because if Kobe had played for the Sixers, he'd have been a god in sure. Philadelphia. You know, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, he, he had exactly the kind of drive and commitment to winning and, and that Philadelphia sports fans want from all their athletes. Um, but you had this pocket in Lower Marion that really looked at him as a point of pride. And I think more importantly, guys, remembered him not totally as the, the basketball superstar of the Lakers. They remembered him as the kid who sat next to them in English class mm. or the kid who used to t- speak Italian to his sisters in the hallways of the high school or when he was on the team bus to a game and the bus would go over a, a bridge in a body of water. He would white knuckle it because he was a little afraid of heights. Like that's the guy and the kid that they remembered. And so when he died, I think all those memories and all those feelings kind of came to the forefront and that struck me and that kind of persuaded me like, okay, this is something that's worth a really uh, yeah. bigger examination story. I think what you did there, you achieved what you set out to, that much like John Berent with City of Falling Angels, or, well, both the main John Berent books that people might know, um, the place almost became a character, which, and I love that, because I love, you know, kind of my brain candy if I'm fried at night is, you know, Alan First or other kind of spy fiction type stuff, and... Um, Alan First is a master of doing this, whether it's Prague or it's Berlin or it's, you know, anywhere, any city in pre or post-war Europe. And um, was that deliberate to almost make um, not just Philadelphia, but as you said, like Lower Marion and and certain parts of the city, uh, almost like a character? It absolutely was, Phil. Yeah, I wanted people, Robert Caro, who might be the best biographer in the history of biographers, um, talks very eloquently about having a sense of place in a story. And that was very important to me. Um, I wanted people to feel everything that kind of Kobe was going through, whether it was Lower Marion or Philadelphia, whether it was the sense of the times in the early and mid 1990s. Um, you know, there's a, I came across a photograph of him uh, from eighth grade in the eighth grade yearbook. And he's in the, uh, he's, he was on the baseball team in eighth grade. And so there's the team photo in the yearbook. And there's 18 kids in that photo, and 17 of them are wearing baseball uniforms, hats, and gloves. The only one who isn't is Kobe. And you see this photo, and it's like he's wearing a sweater that I can only describe as like if he were a character on The Cosby Show. Like, that's the kind of sweater he would wear. And <laughs> it's such an it's so emblematic of time and place yeah. and context and all of that, and I wanted to capture that in the book. And, and you did in reading the book and then listening to the podcast, the incredible podcast that you did, I Am Kobe, which the two of them, they, they have obviously this overlapping story that is told, but so many unique aspects that can only be told through a book or versus things that you can get into in a podcast format. And, and as I hear both of you talk about that, it is exactly what you were able to do is make that area make make that a a character and make that really have that sense of place that was so critical to that phase of his life that very few people 
everybody knows he went to Lower Marion. Everybody understands that that's where he came out of. And then but the focus point for his whole career was Lakers and Lakers and, and the NBA. And so it just was so well done in, in how you did that. Um, I'm curious about as you went through that and kind of put yourself back into those times, but then also had this sort of back and forth. What was, what was that like for you? Was it a little bit of a memory lane for you as you, you must've been kind of going down and through that, that period? Oh, it absolutely was Tim. I mean, you know, on multiple levels too, because as I said, from a high school standpoint, my experience was probably similar to Kobe's. I mean, certainly yeah. not the same. And I'm certainly, I'm not talking about it from a basketball standpoint right, at right. all. <laughs> but I am talking about it from, like, I, I started at my high school as a new student, as a freshman. So I was a fish out of water, too. And so it was easy for me to think of Kobe in those terms, but with obvious differences, right? Like, and, and that's where the research comes in, right? I'm a, I'm a white Catholic kid going to a high school for the first time. Kobe is a black very talented basketball player, also raised Catholic, who's going to Lower Marion. And, but he's been in Italy for eight years. Yeah. So it's not just, there's the added layer. It's not just, hey, it's a new school. It's like, it's almost like a new country in some ways. And so, you know, he hasn't grown up the way all the black kids in the school district have. He hasn't grown up in the way all the white kids have. He's kind of sui generis in that regard. So what is that like? What did, what did the people around him pick up on in that regard? And, and my high school background was helpful in that regard. And then with respect to, you know, the, the, the moons or the planets in orbit around Kobe, that was why I, that was part of the reason I spent as much time as I did in the book on the LaSalle narrative, because I wanted both from a LaSalle standpoint and also a Duke Mike Krzyzewski standpoint, I wanted to show how Kobe and the decisions he was making were kind of affecting and impacting other entities, right? Like sure. Speedy Morris might get fired if he doesn't get Kobe Bryant to LaSalle. Right. What, what is that story? How does that build up? And, and how is it changed by what Kobe's doing and deciding? Same thing with Duke. You know, they're coming off of two national championships. Coach K is looking for the next Grant Hill. What's going on there? What's happening with Sonny Vaccaro and all the machinations to get Kobe into Adidas and then to the NBA? You want to see how these planets are affected by the movements of the sun. And Kobe is that sun. So um, it was very nostalgic. It was, I mean, I, at some level, I really enjoyed it because it took me back to it an earlier time in my life that I cherish. It's hard, hard to project if this had happened, but how would it have changed his trajectory and some some ways maybe the trajectory of the Lakers and the NBA if he had gone either to your alma mater or to Duke or somewhere else, even if he had just been a one and done or he'd stayed for two seasons and been done? Do you think it, the, it would have drastically changed that course and that maturation and learning process? Or do you think that it may have just been a slight detour to the side and then he gets back on a similar track. It's a really interesting question. I'll take the Lakers component of it first, Phil. I think it would have changed history for the Lakers completely because Jerry West's entire strategy that offseason, once he sees Kobe work out, is I'm getting Shaquille O'Neal. We're already, we're already taking steps to do that. And I'm going to get Kobe. And we're going we're gonna to have the next greatest player uh, in the NBA. So we have these two pillars that are going to be the, the rocks of our dynasty uh, to rebuild this franchise. So if Kobe stay, if Kobe goes to college and isn't available in that draft, 
you know, maybe West has to wait a year. Maybe he doesn't get Kobe at all. Maybe something happens. Kobe gets injured. Who the heck knows? Um, as far as the what would have how, what would have been different about Kobe if he had gone to college? Um, I think he would have. I think it would have depended on where he went. He he says overtly, if he had gone to college, he would have gone to Duke. And I think he would have embraced the academic environment at Duke. Um, he could have been an aerospace engineer without the basketball. He was that smart. Yep. And so I think he would have, you know, really relished being in that environment, but I don't think it would have changed what his ultimate goal was, was to get to the league. And I think um, LaSalle, it would have been completely different. I think he might've gotten bored <laughs> to be yeah. quite honest. Yeah. Um, you know, the circumstances would have had to have been so on point for him to have gone there. You know, his dad probably would have had to have been the head coach. The two of them would have had to coax other great players to come to LaSalle and kind of redo the fab five from Michigan from the early nineties. And by the time Kobe's finishing his junior year and heading into that summer, that's, that's not happening. He's, he's bigger than LaSalle and he knows it. Yeah. And there was so much speculation from the Tim Thomas rumor of them thinking about Villanova together. And the, I think later on, you, you can please correct me on this. Did he at one point say, no, I, I was leaning towards Dean Smith and, and UNC. There was another sort of counter comment by him. Well, well, no, actually, he he never really looked at UNC. Got um, it. And as, yeah, and as he says on these tapes, and actually, uh, kind of the ironic part of his first meeting with Michael Jordan, he says on these tapes that he never would have gone to UNC because Michael went there. As Got much as, he admi- as much as as much as he admired Jordan, he felt like he wouldn't have his own identity at Carolina. He just would have been the guy who followed Michael. Interesting. And, um, you know, when when he meets Jordan and interacts with him really for the first time in March of 1996 before a Bulls Sixers game, Jordan's lobbying him to go to Carolina. Come on, man, become a Tar Heel. We want, we need you in Carolina. We want you in Carolina. And Michael has no idea that Kobe's already made his mind up. He's gone. Right. So were there, were there things, Mike, where was there anything that stands out where as you start to pour through the trenches that you have to sift through and the things that you have to, as Phil said, panning for gold and putting all of this information together and understanding what the facts were and, and putting it into a story. Was there anything along the way that really stands out for you as it's just, it just took you aback. It just shocked you. Is This was really not what you expected. Um, I, I don't know if it shocked me so much, but it was surprising to see the degree to which he was committed at such an early age to this path. It was, it wasn't like he just came to it out of nowhere as a high school kid or like had a growth spurt and realized like, oh my gosh, I can go straight to the NBA. Like he was planning for this when he was three years old, four years old, five years old. You can see why the idea of the Mamba mentality mentality resonated in the way that it did, because he's the example of the, of the kid and the man or the person who knew exactly what he wanted to be and do at the earliest possible age you could know such a thing, took all the steps required to to fulfill that dream and achieve that dream. And it doesn't mean that there weren't sacrifices and costs along the way, but he just knew and knew what he had to do at such an early age that it, it it, it threw me for a loop. Like hearing that he would ice his knees after pickup games when he was 11 and 12 years old, and all his peers would be looking at him like, what the hell is this dude doing? Like, who does he think he is? But but he had seen NBA players do that, and he was going to do it too. Um, there's an anecdote in the book uh, where I relate about 
he's 14 or 15 and he has a friend, Anthony Gilbert, who's a couple years older than he is. And the two of them go around to, to basketball courts in and around Philly and Kobe's working on his game and he's shooting threes and dunking and working on his footwork. And Anthony's rebounding for him and he's screaming at him. You're soft. You go to a white school. You're not tough enough to play in the public league. And Kobe is, has asked him to do this and wants him to, to do this so that he'll have this like emotional armor for what he's already hearing from his competitors, what he's going to hear throughout high school, and what he figures he's going to hear in the NBA. At 14 or 15, I was like, I'm like working up the courage to try to talk to a member of the opposite sex. Yeah, and Kobe right. like is doing exactly what he needs to do to make himself the greatest basketball player in the world. And that, that thinking and that approach just really took me aback. Like it's easy to, to get a sense of it just from who Kobe was as a player and an athlete and a fully grown man. It's not until you hear those anecdotes from his childhood, you realize, oh my God, how deep does this thing really run? Well, that's amazing. Yeah. You, you mentioned the sacrifice piece of it. What did he have to sacrifice? Because people see the MVP as the All-Star Game MVP as the Jordan parallels, the titles, um, but they don't see the grunt work. What, what, what were some of the things going on in what Damian Lillard kind of calls the hidden hours that people might not realize until they read the book? Well, I mean, he's playing basketball constantly. I mean, his free time is at the, you know, Jewish community center in Lower Marion playing pickup or, you know, hitting, you know, hitting the weights. He's got a personal trainer the summer between his junior and senior years of high school. And he's, yeah. you know, watching film on Friday nights. He has this kind of quasi girlfriend who their dates together aren't really dates. They are her coming over to the Bryant house and watching videos with him of magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. Like, <laughs> you know, Kobe, like you're a real romantic here, man. Right. Um, right. You know, but there's that, I think there was a social cost. He was able to move in and out of different social groups at, in, in high school, you know, basketball is his way in initially. He's, he's kind of this alien. He doesn't know where he fits in. He doesn't have the background that all these kids do, but he's a great basketball player. And eventually, like, he gets to connect with the kids who like rap music or the kids who are in his honors English class or the kids on the basketball team. And he's able to move on all these worlds, but he doesn't really have a really, really, really close core of friends. Mm. You know, people who stay, who, who would stay with him forever. Um, the people who he was friends with at that time kind of, they eventually kind of fall away in time. He likes them, but he doesn't keep them really close to him. And, you know, I think that's kind of part of the basketball, the sacrifice for basketball that I'm moving on. I'm doing other things. Um, and you know, you're going to, you're my friends now, but you know, I'm going to be moving on from this and you guys probably can't come with me on this journey. Um, right. you know, and I think there's a lot of that. I think there's, uh, his, his high school, uh, English teacher in 10th grade, uh, Gene Mastriano, who was kind of his mentor as well. They stayed close over, over the years, had a, had a great line to me. She said, um, he told me that he was very lonely and he would dribble himself to sleep. And I think that gets to the, to your question, Phil, about the sacrifice, you know, you can't be the kid who's hanging out with everybody on a Friday night or a Saturday night. You're just, he didn't want to be that kid in some way. And he wasn't going to be that kid. The night of the championship game, afterwards, the entire team goes to a cheerleader's house for a big party, and Kobe stays for one hour and goes home. That that's kind of the sacrifice that you're talking about. Yeah, and and then you lead a one of the chapters off, which you lead each chapter off with a quote from 
Kobe, he said, I decided to spend most of my free time, nights, weekends, going to gyms, playing basketball by myself. And that, like you said, was the trade-off. He knew full well what he was doing. And he always knew that he always, he always knew the choice he was making and what it would lead to. He always would talk to me about just how much confidence he gained from out working and out preparing the idea that in his mind. And I mean, you do the math, it's, it, you can't argue it, but that is part of why he would do a early, early Mamba morning workout and then take a nap, get something to eat, maybe work on a project, go back for a noon workout, get some lunch, take a nap, go back for a night workout and go to meetings and stuff in between. But he, he was saying in one day, I got two more workouts than anybody that was probably if they got one and multiply that times a summer, times an off season, times a career. And you have a guy on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting about that, Tim, is that, that that leads me to think of one of the anecdotes that leads off one of the chapters, which shows kind of the, the duality of what you're talking about, right? Which is Kobe, you know, throughout his high school life, but particularly during his senior year, would arrive at Lower Marion High School before anybody else, right? He'd get there before the principal and the teachers and the other students and the staff members, and he would have a janitor let him in to the gym so he could shoot for an hour, Okay. So you hear that and you go, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a kid who, you know, is just willing to do whatever he needs to do to be great at basketball, dovetailing exactly with what you're talking about. You do that over time, you're going right. to, the greatness is going to accumulate. But here's the flip side of that. And this gets to Phil's, you know, points about research and context and all of this. When he would drive and arrive to this school, it's still dark out. It's 545, six o'clock in the morning. He would park in a prime parking spot on campus. One of the faculty members' lots, one of the administrators' spots, you know, and he would do that every day. And what made that interesting to me was there was construction going on at Lower Marion High School at the time that he was doing that. So at a time, Lower Marion would have normally, let's say, 75 parking spots around its campus for all the people who could park at the school. At that time, there were only 25 because of the construction. Yet Kobe would still take one of those prime spots because in his thinking, I deserve one of these spots. I'm going to be better at basketball than the principal is at being a principal, than the administrators and staff members are at being administrative and staff members, the faculty members are at being teachers, and that any of my classmates and, and student, fellow students are going to be at the jobs that they are going to have. So I take this spot. And that's just it. Like on the one hand, you think like, Somebody who's maintaining that kind of routine would be totally grounded and humble mm. about himself. And yet Kobe, even at that age, saw himself on a different plane. I'm on yeah. a path to greatness and this is what I'm doing. And to hell with anybody who gets in my way or can't match what I'm trying to do. Well, you bring up those morning workouts. And I think if I'm recalling that section of the book, there was also a teammate that he would kind of swing by and pick him up. I yep. can't, can't think of his name at the moment, but Robbie he Schwartz, Robbie Schwartz. So talk a little bit about what Robbie's idea was of how this was going to develop for Robbie. And then what it, reality was for him on being picked up for those morning workouts. So Robbie was a year younger than Kobe. He was probably the last guy on the lower Marion bench. He's five foot seven. He's, you know, built kind of stumpy. He just wants to be along for the ride. He makes the team and he's right. totally happy with that. And so Kobe asks him if he wants to join him for these morning workouts. And Robbie's like, absolutely, because this is my chance to bond with Kobe. 
maybe we'll, you know, he'll show me some things and I'll get better as a player and he and I'll become the best of friends. And every morning, all Robbie's doing is freaking rebounding for Kobe. And Kobe's like in his <laughs> own little world and he's doing his thing and Robbie just passes the ball back. And Robbie, you know, at one point told me, he's like, you know, I was never so cold in all my life as I was when we would get to the gym and the janitor would have to turn the heat on in the school and you'd sit there shivering for five to 10 minutes as the heat came on. Kobe's doing his workout. And even during the season, you know, there are some anecdotes in there where Kobe gets incredibly angry at Robbie for transgressions during practice. Robbie dares to like score on a layup and taunt Kobe and Kobe pegs the basketball at him. Or Robbie takes a shot on a three-on-three game when he's on Kobe's team and misses. Kobe's team loses. And Kobe, you know, becomes like a, a myth that Kobe chases him around the school trying to strangle him, you know. But right. they were friends, but he never really got that as close to Kobe as he thought. And it was all because Kobe, of the way Kobe was wired and the way he was approaching things. Like, I'm on this level. You either are at, are at my level or you're not. And if you're not, I'm only going to make so many allowances for you. Yeah, and what's interesting is in my experience and time with Kobe, there was always this, I think, this recognition or a coming to realization if you had a chance to support what he was doing or bring your service, your craft towards what what was he needed or what, what helped him. But that was ultimately the transaction for him, right? And that I'm not saying it's good, it's bad, it's what it – took in his eyes. And I'm, I don't even know if that was necessarily true or had to be true that way, but in his eyes it was. And, and if you, it, it was the fact of, do you bring value to me in this journey of where I'm still trying to go towards Rushmore, towards building this legacy? And that is, I think a, a point needs to be made to the name of the book is the rise, but it's Kobe Bryant and the pursuit of immortality. And that's, yeah that is the pursuit of where he was headed. And he had done the math in his head and said, this is the type of, this is the approach I need with the people around me. And, and that's the way it was. Now I also had times where Kobe and and you have anecdotes in the book as well of other people where, and I want to get back to Gene Mastriano because there's some stuff there that's fascinating in, in terms of what she looks back on now and it predicts who he was without her realizing at it at the time. But I had times where, Kobe gets Kobe and Dwight get uh, make the all-star team in Houston in that season for us. That was a, a, a bit of mayhem, but I had a chance to bring my mom to Houston. My mom was in education all her life and he has her come down with the girls playing around him in one of our workouts. And, and he's with his girls. He's talking to my mom about her experience in elementary education and, and high school education and picking her brain on things that he could use to be a better, to help his girls develop and and things like that. And there's, there's, so there's this human side of, he just Mm -hmm. is. And and when you get to see him around his own girls or kids, I think that's the moment where all the other stuff goes away. There's not this equation or algorithm going on of what, what am I getting from value on this? And, and there were those moments. Yeah. And, and there were mo- those moments when he was young, too. He's such a complex figure. It's really right. amazing. I mean, there are, there are anecdotes in the book about, you know, he's he's got a friend, uh, a girl who's thinking about quitting the var- the basketball, the girls basketball team because she's freezing up. Right. She can't. She's great in practice, but something happens in the games and she can't she can't perform at her optimal level. And Kobe mm. tells her, don't quit. Don't quit. Gives her this pep talk. Um, he has other female friends who 
are involved in music and have lovely voices. And he is kind of taken with that and asked them questions. You know, what kind of music do you listen to? What's it like to have a voice like this? Um, you know, he was a searcher in a lot of ways. And there are so many facets to his personality. Um, and they're all there at, yeah. at the earliest stages of his life. Um, it, it's what part, part of what made the journey of doing the book so fascinating. I'll bet. Now go back to Jean Mastriano because she really kind of added oxygen to his fire from a storyteller that was there. Then, as you said, these things were there and taught him, maybe taught him or introduced the idea of what a hero's journey has to look like. Right. Yeah. You know, he has her, uh, his sophomore year for honors English and she is the classic cool teacher. Like she's like the female version of, uh, Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society. She's the kind who gets her students thinking. She wants to give and take. She doesn't. She doesn't want a yes man in the class. She yep. wants smart feedback, ask good questions, and Kobe's all about that. And they spend a lot of their time in that sophomore year, as you said, Tim, talking about the hero's journey. You know, they read the Iliad and the Odyssey, and she shows Star Wars in class and talks about Luke Skywalker and his journey and all of this. And Kobe absorbs it, just soaks it up because, as she told me, you know, years later, he saw himself on that journey. He, he didn't see himself really as just an average kind of kid. He was, in his mind, I don't even know if destined is the right word because that suggests he didn't need to put the work in that he put in. I mean, he was like, I'm on this journey. Good point. You know, I'm on this journey and I'm going to do whatever is necessary because I am like Odysseus, you know, or Luke Skywalker or whatever. And it sounds kind of silly in a way, because you're talking about a 14, 15, 16 year old kid, but then you see what came afterward and you're like, Oh, okay. Like he made it happen. Yeah. And, and going back even further though, you go back to Joe Bryan, who's on a bus trip in Italy and talks to his teammate about the, uh, some, one of either his mom or his grandmother said, there's going to be a, a chosen one in this family. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and Joe says, it's not going to be me. Um, right. You know, here I am, I'm in Italy playing out the string, you know, finally getting yeah. to play basketball the way I want to, but it's not going to be me and it's probably going to be him. And he points to Kobe, you know, when he's eight years old, six years, seven years old, says, maybe it's going to be him. And uh, lo and behold, it was. How much of this journey was Joe kind of helping to orchestrate behind the scenes and how much of it was, Kobe's just sheer force of will and advanced planning of, okay, to get to this step, I'm going to need to do this to, you know, once he decides to make the jump right to the NBA, these are the the phases I'm going to go need to go through. What was that kind of, uh, you know, family influence slash help versus just this singular force of will? Yeah, you're, Phil, you're asking the nature versus nurture question. And I think it's 50, 50. I really do. Kobe, the Mamba mentality in a lot of ways is Pam Bryant's mentality. It's his mother. She was, you know, the leader of the family, the leader of the household, very much a disciplinarian when it came to academics and her children's behavior. But both she and Joe really indulged Kobe when it came to basketball. And because he had the personality that he had, they didn't need to push him or prod him, right? That's why you never heard anything about Joe or Pam being like the stereotypical uh, athlete's parents who were pushing their kid too much, right? right? They didn't have to push him. They kind of, in certain ways, came along for the ride, and in other ways, 
pave the way for him. So to your question, Phil, you know, Joe's got the background of having played in the NBA, plays eight years in Italy. You know, it was kind of a flake, kind of a ne'er-do-well. His, his career in the NBA wasn't quite what it should have been, given his talent and his skill set. And he's bitter about that. And Kobe grows up in that environment hearing, eh, I could have been, you know, I could have been a contender, so to speak. And he wants to redeem his dad's good name in, in basketball circles. Um, but Joe also has the ability, you know, as an assistant coach at LaSalle, to get plugged into all the AAU circuits so that mm. Kobe's playing in the right places with the right teams. He's working behind the scenes. If Speedy Morris at LaSalle gets fired, you know, I'm laying the track so that maybe I get the job because I know some alumni would love for me to get the job and we'll bring in Kobe and we'll bring in Rip Hamilton and Shaheen Holloway and all these other great players and we'll create the Fab Five at LaSalle. And if Kobe is going to go straight to the NBA, then I will reach out to San Vaccaro and I will work my contacts and have this help set up this kind of surreptitious plan on the down low so that, you know, Kobe's going to go to Adidas and go straight to the NBA, but nobody's going to know about it. Um, and he's kind of, in some ways, lying and playing off the people he works with and works for um, so that they don't know what the plans really are. I mean, Joe, Joe was working behind the scenes here, too. Um, but he and Kobe and the family as a whole were so close that it's not surprising in some ways that they would do the things that they did. Yeah, I love that you brought up the shoe companies because obviously Nike broke the mold where they were like, all right, we're going all in with this Jordan kid. So Converse has, you know, Magic, it has Larry, and it was more kind of this, oh, we're going to have, you know, a lot of the top guys, and Nike kind of bets the farm on Jordan. And then there are echoes in how you describe, you know, Sonny Vaccaro and, you know, this brewing kind of war almost between Adidas and Nike potentially. And maybe, you know, maybe a lot of others had fallen off by then. I mean, Converse was eventually subsumed by Nike. You know, Reebok obviously was doing some stuff with Shaq and with AI, but wasn't the same kind of powerhouse. And so really this Nike versus Adidas narrative comes up. What Do you think Adidas was trying to frame its decision-making hearkening back to the Air Jordan 1 or had they progressed in their thinking somewhat and they were looking at you know something different here no I think they were looking for the next Jordan and I think they hired Sonny Vaccaro the man who had found the first one to find the second yeah. one and Sonny says at one point you know there's no explanation it's not like I crank any analytics on this or numbers I just I, I get a sense and I know and it's the hand of God at work and he sees Kobe after a couple of times. He's like, okay, this is it. This is the kid I'm, I'm backing. Whether it's because he, Kobe, you know, grew up part of his youth in Italy and Sonny is Italian or he knows Joe Bryan or he can just see this thing that Kobe has um, because he's such a smart kid and so talented and all these things. Like, that's the next one. And he persuades Adidas to, to go ahead with it. And he was right. I mean, how do you how do you argue otherwise? Yeah, I mean, their only mistake was not signing him to a lifetime deal that he could right, never get exactly. out of. But I mean, for me, those were some of the first shoes I was wearing. Were you know the Kobe one, two, three, and then you get the you know almost like Audi TT Roadster style thing that was big and heavy and didn't breathe and didn't flex very well, you know. But it was out there in terms of designs, and you can almost look at like the Yeezy and some of these new ones now and and look back and be like, that's where that design language came from. But yeah, I mean, the only mistake that Vaccaro and Adidas made was this was not a golden handcuffs career long deal because had it been, 
you know, this whole relationship with Eric Avar and, and the Kobe line that we saw at Nike, you know, would never have come to pass. And we, we would be looking at a different kind of legacy in, in that lens. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Do you think that those Adidas execs and Vaccaro himself look back now and think, darn it, we should have tried to lock him up? <laughs> I'm not sure Sonny does. I would think the Adidas execs probably do. But what's interesting about the point you're making, Phil, is that it gets to something, one of the themes in the book, which is how much of a risk taking a high school kid at that time was regarded, right? Yes. Like, you know, Garnett, yeah, again, Garnett had come out the year before, but Garnett was a man at age 18. Kobe was not. And so while Adidas was backing him and Sonny Vaccaro is saying, this is the next one, eh, man, what if he's not? He's only 17. He's only 18. What, what if it doesn't quite work out? We got to hedge our bets a little bit. And all the teams in the NBA that had the opportunity to draft Kobe looked at him exactly the same way. He, he must not be a sure thing because he's a six foot six guard coming out of a suburban Philadelphia high school. You know, yeah, it's great that he scored 45 against Pencrest. Right. That doesn't mean he's going to be able to guard Michael Jordan or score, uh, you know, on Aaron McKee or whoever, you know, name your, your top defensive guard at the time. Yeah. And so, you know, that plays into what happens with the draft. For instance, you know, he and Arn Tellum are able to manipulate the draft system by not working out for certain teams. I mean, fast forward to, to 2018, 19, 2021, a team wouldn't care nowadays if a prospect didn't work out for them. If they thought he was the best player, they would take him anyway. Yes. But back then, this was an affront. Like, who does Kobe Bryant and Arn, who do Kobe Bryant and Arn Tellum think they are? They're not going to work out for us. The hell with them. We're not taking them. Well, kind of okay, like where, who's this mop-haired, seven-foot German kid, right, in right. Dirk Nowitzki, and Obviously, there were this series of booms and busts with prospects. So you had like a Vladi Divac who came over when he was a lot older. You had an Arvidas Sabonis, you know, people who only know the, the younger Sabonis. Well, his dad, if you listen to the right people, was a 7-3 Larry Bird before the injuries right. in his prime yeah. in Europe. And all we got to see was the Jokic like passing, albeit at low post. Mm -hmm in the latter years. So there were some, some, you know, some, yes, this really worked out for us, but a lot of people, when, when Dirk came over, when poor Zingis was booed, when the Knicks took him, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, imagine being a, a 19, 20 year old poor Zingis in that room and expecting to be cheered and you're booed. But then there's also yep. a Darko, right. And there's also a lot of other prospects who didn't pan out from Europe. So similar kind of thing, like, okay, yeah, we have these scouts and maybe, the assistant GM has been over to Europe with one of our scouts out there. And yeah, I think this kid has some tools, but it's a similar deal, right? No sure thing. Yeah. And I think you have to take it too, Phil, beyond just the basketball ability component and, and factor in the way that Kobe approached the whole process and how revolutionary that was and how off-putting it could be at that time, right? It's not, it's not just that he's declaring for the NBA draft. It's not just that he's a six foot six guard who looks kind of wispy and, you know, you wonder, is he really ready? He scored 1080 out of 1600 on his college boards. He didn't need to go straight to the NBA, right? It wasn't like teams would, or scouts would look at that and go, okay, well, I understand why he's declaring for the NBA. Right. His family needs to eat. Like, no, like he could go to any school in the country. And the fact that he didn't was in some ways kind of regarded as like, well, all right, that's more suspect than it would be 
that, that makes us wonder about his decision. Well, I mean, what, he doesn't even have to do this and he's doing it. What does that say about him and his ego and who he thinks he is and all this stuff? Like there were a million reasons at the time to look askance at what Kobe was doing. And, you know, I mean, even the press conference, right? I'm taking my talent to the NBA. For a lot of people, that was enough, right? Like, I'm not well, that, that kid. That, Who that sounds, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a press conference for himself, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It and sounds yeah. eerily reminiscent of I'm taking my talents to South Beach, which has well, been, you know, slammed more than it. Yeah, of course. He got it. Where do you think it came from? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, but, that's, but that's just it is that at that time, these were the things that you judge somebody on. Yes. And if you and if you look at it from the prism of where we are today and you see it in terms of like an athlete controlling his own future, what he does, what Kobe did back in 1996 becomes so much more logical and reasonable than it was back at back at the time it happened. Yeah. Mike, do you think as you just as you pointed out in the book, as you just pointed out here, that is so true. That was 96 an agent and a player could, as you said, use the uncertainty uncertainty around Kobe to basically manipulate his draft position and the woven aspect of Jerry West being involved with that as well. I want to get to in a second, but that you can't do in the NBA today because they look at it a different way. It's things, everything completely operates in a different way. But the other side of it, I'm wondering if you think prior to the draft, could a young man, a young woman manipulate or will, I guess, will their way with this crafted plan from the age of, you said three, four, five, that the plan was there. Is that even possible the way today's game is? It's been AAUified. It's been everything. No, I, I don't think it is, Tim. Right. Um, because as you said, there's so much more structure now yeah. in some ways. There is the pipeline. Like, if Kobe Bryant came along today, he yes. in all likelihood would not go to Lower Marion High School. He would be at IMG Academy or Montverde Academy. You know, he'd be down somewhere in Florida or somewhere okay. in California. Okay. You know, and yep. Exactly. And he would be on the treadmill or the or the conveyor belt that takes young athletes to stardom. And that to me was one of the coolest parts of his story was that yeah. he was right at the vanguard at the turning point of all this, right? He's old school in some regards, like he plays for his community high school and he allows that community and that area to come together. Doesn't matter if you're black, you're white, if you don't like basketball, if you don't know anything about basketball, if you love basketball, we've got this star and he's approachable and he's polite and nice to everybody while he's working behind the scenes to be an absolute killer. And here we are. And it's, 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 it's kind of the point where everything changes in some ways. I don't think it could happen nowadays. I just don't think it could, especially, and we haven't even talked about the idea of social media right. today and, versus and then, it not existing back then. Yeah. It's exactly. interesting. Could you maybe, we talked about how the initial plan was, okay, we're going to sit down with this vintage micro cassette recorder that you're, you're lucky still worked, frankly. Um, and we're going to record some cassette tapes and eventually you're my man. You're going to write this book that doesn't play out. Now there is a LeBron James's high school team documentary. LeBron's on the cover of SI at 14, 15, probably on the cover of slam at 16, 17. Um, high school games are on national TV. Now these kids have 
multiple millions of followers across all social platforms, as you, as you just mentioned. Um, can you compare and contrast the LeBron experience a little bit um, and the business mindset maybe there? And as you mentioned, even, you know, Rich and some of his guys who are now, you know, one's his agent, one kind of, ha- you know, is, is an executive producer with him on these shows that he's involved with, these movies mm-hmm. that he helps finance. Can you talk a little bit about that that kind of string, that red thread from Kobe to LeBron and beyond? All right. Well, so to let's do the contrast first. Mm. This was one of the things that kind of blew me away in, in reading up and, and re-talking to people. And I say this as somebody who's worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer for eight years and who loves the place. It was my dream job to get there and work there. What the hell were they doing? They didn't write about Kobe very much for the first like two or three years right. he was there. I think they just okay. did it in advance because they knew you were going to come along and they were going to screw Maybe. you on it. I, I, thank you for answering the question, Phil. That's perfect. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, like here is a kid who as a freshman in a suburban Philadelphia high school is the son of a relatively well-known Philadelphia basketball standout, a guy who was a star in high school, star in college, played for the Sixers, well-known name in the city. And nobody really knew about Kobe throughout his freshman year or even really his sophomore year or even most of his junior year because you had to be on the main line. You had to be reading like the weekly newspapers in and around Lower Marion Township. And if you subscribed to the Philadelphia Inquirer and got the section of the paper that covered suburban high schools, you might read a 450-word game story that mentions that, oh, Kobe Bryant had 25 points in Laura Marion's victory last night. Like, the idea of Kobe at that time, again, Kobe in 2021, when he's 14 or 15, isn't getting 450 words in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and that's the only way everybody knows. He already has a million Instagram followers and and 2 million followers on Twitter, and he's posting videos of himself, and everybody knows who he is. And... To take it from, I mean, you see the progression from that to what LeBron becomes, you know, 20 years ago now to what we see now. And even, Zion, the power. even Zion and then, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll ask you about DJ Wagner in a little bit here when we get to that. But, you know, Imoni Bates and some of these kids now that, mm-hmm. you know, Bates was on the cover of Slam maybe a year and a half ago. And that, to, in my mind, still means something. Maybe not as much yeah. as it did during the heyday of the magazine with the, the Iverson kind of Dr. J cover and that kind of thing. But it still means something. And, and you're right, because, yeah, it, it's taken even a quantum leap beyond LeBron. But it, it's just interesting to me that this series of interviews that coulda, woulda, shoulda, and now eventually is a book, and obviously you've added your own flavor and a lot more depth and color to it, goes from that to LeBron it was always planned that there was going to be this documentary on it to now these kids with these, you know, through the legs, 360 dunk mm-hmm. mixtapes when they're, you know, sophomores, juniors, maybe younger. And it's no longer just a little bit in faces in the crowd in SI, maybe, or a right. tiny little bit in an obscure section of, of the, the city paper of record. You're right. And, and the other difference too, as you guys know, is how much the athletes control those sorts of media nowadays too. And, you know, Kobe was the same way with the Mama mentality and production and his forays in the film and all of that. And so, you know, so much of that was out of his hands at the time and it's not out of these athletes hands now. And, you know, I, I felt like that was one of the things that made the book project and the podcast in some ways really unique was that it wasn't, 
Michael Jordan having final say over the 10 episodes of The Last Dance. It was, you know, I'm, I'm removed from this. I'm not Kobe's friend. You know, I covered him a bit when he was alive. I know all the players involved. I'm trying to tell a full and honest, give a full and honest accounting of his early life. And that makes it a little different from what you see nowadays. It's not LeBron on Showtime produced by LeBron and Rich Paul. And yeah. so that that's a factor. That's a key factor. I think it's a big difference. Well, that's why I, that's why I like books like yours so much better than a, even with say, we mentioned Churchill earlier, you know, his, you know, he won the Nobel prize for literature, right. For his world war, yeah. war two memoir, well, his memoirs around the whole time, but that's going to be justifying some of the right. less savory episodes in the war. Well, we had to do this because, and the same with any athlete. Like, I don't like that first-person voice. I don't like the first-person perspective and the curated-slash-presented style versus, as you mentioned, someone who's a bona fide journalist, even if, you know, it's more p positive than negative and you're not trying to do a hack job or it's not some kind of crazy revisionist history. Oh, the guy was actually a, a maniac, an asshole, whatever, because there are those right. hack job books. And I hate those too. But it, there, there is definitely a difference looking at it through a writer's lens and a researcher's lens um, in the way that you've done it versus I, Kobe, if that was the name of the book, by Kobe Bryant with Kobe Bryant's best friend as the ghostwriter. Yeah, and I, I, that's something, Phil, that I thought about the moment I began the project. And um, without saying too much, um, if you, got, you guys have read the book, there's an anecdote in the book that um, comes from Kobe's senior year uh, that has to do with a seminar that he tries to walk out of. And um, when I got that anecdote, one of my big worries in, in taking on the project, at least initially, was, as I said, I didn't want it to be a pay-on to Kobe. I wanted it to be full and honest. And so the the specter of Aurora, Colorado in 2003, 2004 hangs over that because if you're going to tell a full Kobe story, you have to involve that or pay respect to it in some way. And yep. I, I got an anecdote that allowed me to do that without having to be ham handed and preachy about it. And as a researcher, you guys know this, that that was my biggest moment of relief in the course of researching and writing the book. Was, okay, now I can I can just kind of leave that anecdote there, and people can make of it what they want to make of it. So much of writing nowadays, it seems to me, is not about either persuading people who disagree with you or allowing people to make up their own minds, presenting them with a set of facts and a story, just saying make of this what you will. Yeah, I mean, and that's what too I wanted much. to do. With, there's yeah. too much on both sides, even politically, whether right. this is our core narrative. And if exactly. anyone in our camp dares to either not toe the line, then they're going to become persona non grata and or what I think it was David Hackett Fisher, the great historian, said, like, history is not taking a set of suppositions and then finding evidence to back them up. Right. right? That's just called dishon intellectual dishonesty. Right. No, you're 100% right. And, and I didn't want to do that. I, I, I actually had an interviewer a couple of weeks ago ask me about that. Like, what, what's your take on Kobe? Your take on Kobe isn't in the book. I said, I don't want it to be in the book. I yeah. don't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to shut people off. I didn't want people who really loved Kobe to read the book and go, this guy just wants to hammer him. And I didn't want people who might be inclined to not like Kobe for whatever reason to say, oh, this guy's just praising him to the high heavens and there's nothing critical about him at all. I wanted to 
played as down the middle with as much detail and texture as I could. And as I said, kind of let the chips fall where they may when it came to the reader judging Kobe for him or herself. So good. And you did it. And you did that. I want to go back because there's the, the piece that you opened up there, the idea that many people struggled to when evaluating him as a junior and senior, when he did get into the radar onto the radar of NBA scouts or NBA people. And the idea that later on way down the road, wow, he really could be in this draft right here in in 96. But one person didn't miss it. One person didn't overlook it. And one person said it's a no brainer. And we just had Mitch Kupchak on who was at the second of the two workouts at Inglewood YMCA, but Jerry West it cut the workout in 15 minutes. The first one he'd seen enough. And then basically as Mitch tells a story, he said, Jerry called me and says, I said, I need you to look at this. You got to see this. And and then I'll tell you what I think. But they, Mitch said, yeah, before the workout even started, he saw him working out on the sideline, warming up and he was doing stuff that a kid that age shouldn't be able to do. But you had the other side of it where you brought up in the book, Rob Babcock with the T-Wolves said in reference to Kevin Garnett, which you talked about earlier, Kevin's ability as a 6'11 player was so overwhelming. It came through immediately and he's a special player that he just knew that. And then the idea of what he said followed up to that was if you watch Kobe and you don't, you, you basically don't, in his eyes, you don't see that. His game doesn't say I'm a very special talent at that moment. So just, just talk through that. How can somebody, what was it that Jerry had that somebody didn't? Or maybe even, as you said, I hadn't heard you talk about that from Sonny's standpoint because he just said, I don't know, I just know. Yeah, I think, I think with respect to, to Jerry, um, and I would have loved to have asked him about this, this is just kind of me speculating, is, I wonder if it was at some level it was easier or he was more able to see the work that Kobe had put in to make himself great, right? Mm. At some level, you can look at a seven-footer with a pterodactyl wingspan and rippling muscles and a scowling face like Kevin Garnett and just yeah. say, yeah, he's going to be great. Of course, like I could do that. You guys could do that. Right. Of course, we can look at Kevin Garnett and see he's going to be great. It takes a much more seasoned eye and maybe some other qualities that speak to who Jerry West is as a person and a talent evaluator to see what Kobe had at that time and why it was going to continue to grow and blossom. Like that intangible kind of it thing that, you know, I don't know. I don't know another way to put it. And Sonny saw it too. Maybe it was in the way Kobe carried himself. Maybe it was in the way that Kobe uh, dealt with Michael Cooper in the workout. Like, I'm not deferring to you. I am here to freaking school your ass, right. you know, and, and then he does it, you know, and, and it's done in a way like one of two of the things that really, from a technical stand, basketball standpoint, that really stood out to me uh, in researching the book was number one, I talked to Tim Legler, a uh, fellow LaSalle alum and a really good analyst of the game. And he pointed out that no perimeter player has ever had better footwork than Kobe. And that, mm. that is born out of, the hours he spent working, but more importantly, the hours he spent watching those pro players in Italy and what they had to do to be at that their best, right? Like he could watch, he watched Jordan do what he was doing and Magic doing what he was doing, but he had a ground level view of these perimeter players and post guys in, in Europe to see what they could do. 
the other thing is his hands were not big by NBA standards. Yeah, and so right. he couldn't really palm the ball. Like he couldn't dunk the ball the way Michael could because Michael could hold it like a softball. And Kobe had to cup his hand to just to dunk. And, and the size of his hands led him to need out all the imperfections that came to the fundamentals of his game. He was going to be better dribbling the ball and moving with his feet because he couldn't rely on just, well, I can just grab the ball and hold it. Everything else has to be perfect to make up for the fact that my hands are just a little bit smaller than like the greatest player's hands usually are. And when you think about it in those terms, then maybe you get at what West is seeing yeah. um, from a technical standpoint. Of like, oh my God, look at what this kid can do at 17. If he's doing this at 17, what's he going to do at 22, 23, 24, 25? That's it's interesting it. that um, TD, in, in just listening to some of your observations of Kobe that you you've shared with me, and you know we did the the episode titled something like eight eight things that Kobe Bryant taught me in in the fact that you worked side by side with him for so many years. Yep. When you read this book, was there ever a shiver down your spine uh, when you you came across a section or a passage where you were like, oh, so this habit that maybe in the moment you thought was kind of random or out there there was a route here that went back all these years yeah no question i think the one that stands out is it, it shocked me a little bit to see this initially as i'm beginning to work with him and and guide him within the weight room during the time that i did and obviously that was during his final four seasons were my first four seasons with the lakers and those were really injury riddled seasons for him from one to the next to the next. And so we spent a lot of time from the training room to the weight room because, and the, and the rehab side to the weight room, because there was a lot of return to play opportunities. But one of the things was his, he would do certain exercises with his eyes closed, not because I had told him to do that as a rehab professional. I want you to close your eyes and, and that'll make a proprioceptive challenge and make this a harder balance situation for you, which is done very commonly in, in that space. But because just to interrupt he, you, Tini, yeah. great, you, great use of the word of proprioceptive. That's the, you are the <laughs> first podcast I've ever been on where that word has been dropped. You're the man. We we go all different parts <laughs> of the, the the spectrum here. We we could we could go any way you want, but uh, I appreciate That's that. Awesome. So the the. That was the, just so interesting to me because as I asked him and tried to get into why he would be doing that and he was happy to share is he wanted to understand and get so deeply into that moment of what he was doing into the muscles that he was supposed to be feeling and working and doing a really, really rudimentary basic exercise with his eyes closed, but he wanted to get fully everything from it. And I think there's many anecdotes that you have, and maybe one stands out for you that parallels to that of just how he was so able to be rooted into the moment and be squeezing every drop out of what he was doing at any given time. And he knew that that's what it took. And maybe there was part of that just naturally easy for him to do as, as having the personality he did. But I think just that stands out for me as I, throughout the book, I, I read many anecdotes where, yeah, that that then parlayed into what I saw him doing at the age of darn near forty, <laughs> to to close his eyes during very very basic exercises. 
Yeah, it's it's it, what's the, the flip side of that though. What's really interesting to me about that, Tim, is that how people saw that in him, right? Like you're right. There are plenty of anecdotes of that in in the book. Yeah. But one of the more like we haven't even talked about Greg Downer, his coach at Lower Merion. Right. And and one of the brilliant things that Downer did in coaching Kobe was going into his senior into Kobe's senior year. Downer basically created a coaching staff in many ways to challenge and accommodate Kobe at the same time. And so, because he knows there's nobody on this freaking team who can challenge him in any regard. Right. Yeah. So I've got to do something to create creative tension there for him. So I've got my assistant coach, Mike Egan, who's going to run the defense. I've got Jeremy treatment. Who's going to handle all the media interviews and make sure Kobe doesn't have to deal with all those distractions. I've got my older brother, Drew Downer, who's kind of like the, chaplain of the team he's the emotional barometer he's the guy who's everybody's big brother and can you know comfort somebody or motivate somebody blah 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 and then the real key is he brings on this this guy jimmy kaiserman who was a point guard a division one point guard at Ryder and at miami and it played professionally abroad mm. and was tough and could dunk and was 26 and you are guarding kobe and challenging kobe at every practice. Wow. For that reason, for the very reason you're talking about is that that allows Kobe to get to that place. He needs to get to with the requisite challenge and pushback that he needs. If Robbie Schwartz is guarding him at practice, Kobe ain't getting out of practice what he needs to get out of it. Right. If Robbie Schwartz and two other guards on the team are guarding Kobe at practice, he's still not getting out of it what he needs. But we've we've got the um, the Division One point guard, and that's who we need to put on him, and it works. It's, you, it's you bring up a really good point because yeah, sure there are these. You know, we interviewed um, Joe Mantegna from from Blair Academy. It's obviously a powerhouse program. Although, as he said, he didn't know at the time that Luol Deng and he had Charlie Villanueva the same year were going to be his. <laughs> quite as good as they were the first year out of the gate or all the championships that have come since. But now he was talking about these exhibition games where, you know, a Blair will play an Oak Hill or a, you know, as you mentioned, the, 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 the squads coming out of IMG Academy will play someone and it's nationally televised. So even in games now, if you see footage sometimes of just local rivalry play, when it's a guy like you mentioned, Kevin Garnett, like a man child, and he's dunking on kids that are five seven, five eight. It just doesn't look very impressive, right? Because you're like, well, of course he's going to dominate. You know, he may be playing the opposing center might be six three or six four on a smaller local school. So yeah, you think he's going to dominate them? So I would imagine that even in a lot of their games, where Kobe, as you mentioned in the newspaper, it says, oh, he dropped forty two or he dropped forty five. Well, yeah. What do you think, right? Because he is. Yeah. I, I, I mean, even the competition in games for him. At, you know, at his at the apex of his high school career can't have been tougher than what you just mentioned with this college kid coming in, this man that he has to match up with in practice. Yeah, and, and that gets back to the skepticism about him jumping straight to the NBA. Like, it's not like he was playing in, you know, elite, even an elite high school league, right? There were there were games he had against Division One. Like, there's an early season game against a Philadelphia powerhouse Roman Catholic. And he goes against Donnie Carr, who ended up going to LaSalle. The two of them were friends. 
And Donnie scores more points and outplays him, and Roman beats Lower Marion. And that game was a standout for people who were doubting that Kobe could make the jump. It's like, well, how good can you possibly be? Donnie Carr outplays right. you. And Donnie Carr's not making the jump to the NBA, so what makes you think you're going to make the jump? And so much of that, again, comes back to the expectations of the time. Not just that, and I don't just mean that in, in terms of the player that, the, the, the athlete, the pro player that Kobe or Donnie Carr is going to be. I mean the expectations of how a Kobe or a Donnie is supposed to go about achieving those and fulfilling those expectations. Donnie Carr did what he was supposed to do. He went to LaSalle University. He, he could have left after his freshman year, but didn't. He stayed to play for his hometown university. And he did everything right, quote in quotes, and he ended up, it never worked out for him. And Kobe did everything wrong by the standards of that time. And here we are talking about him. You, you mentioned a, a really interesting dichotomy, and that is the need to help develop and challenge Kobe to help him to get to where he doesn't just think he might go, but is pretty convinced he's going to go. And then on the other side, you've got all these other kids who've got to have some kind of basketball experience too. TD, are there any parallels there to Kobe's last few years where you're, you know, the Lakers are drafting high picks. They're kind of in rebuild mode. Um, yes, Kobe really wants to win that one last championship, but the injuries start to pile up. But there's this, you know, maybe this mindset even in the front office at the time of, look, we need to, I wouldn't, appease isn't the right word, but we need to accommodate Kobe and try to hold everyone in the organization to his standard of excellence. But yet we've got these young kids coming in and we have to develop them too. So how do we balance these two? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I have a great anecdote that does, now that you bring that up, Phil, it, it really displays kind of how he did that later on. And I'll get to it in a second. But I, as I'm talk, thinking back as well to some of the other personality pieces that I saw, but were obviously there brought in anecdotes of the book. The I go back to Jean Mastriano again, because as she said in the book, and as you've talked about, Mike, she loved the fact that he was not a yes person. He was not just going to say yes, teacher, or yes, Miss Mastriano. Yes, coach. Yes, it, whatever yeah. it is. He wanted to know, why are we doing this? I'm happy to do the work. I, I'm happy to grind it out and come up with a great piece of homework assignment that I hand to you and, and I'll give it my all. But he wanted to know why he questioned it every step of the way. And she loved that. He did that with me in the weight room. So going into the off season, one of the, the years I was with him and, and figuring out what he wanted to have his game look like, how we were going to address one of the current injuries and then get out to the other side and have the next season be what he wanted it to be. He said, I need to be quicker off the jump. I need to be, I'm not physically what I was when I was 20 and I can't jump with my head at the rim anymore, but I need to be quicker off the jump, put something together. So I, I come to the table with what's looked at now as sort of the French contrast method. Essentially you do a heavy squat with a set of a series of, of squat jumps immediately thereafter. So you pair strength with plyometric work and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to say, cool, he's got a plan, let's go, and let's go to work. And he looks it over, and he's, he says, well, tell me why this is going to work. 
I mean, like he wanted to know the anatomy and physiology response and the adaptations that were going to happen to create that. And I had to go into mm-hmm. depth, which I was happy to do, but it wasn't good enough to just say, this is what we're going to do. I've got a plan. Why? Why is this going to work? Tell me, tell me why. And, and so that really s- stood out for me in a big way as I thought more about those personality traits that were already there. He always was that way. And it's, it's that, that dovetails again, perfectly to one of the anecdotes in the book, which is the big loss that the lower Marion basketball team sustains early in the season. They're playing at this big tournament in Myrtle beach and they have a big lead in the second half of the game. And Kobe's got 31 points and he fouls out and the team completely melts down. Right. They, they, they lose the lead, they go to overtime, they get blown out in overtime, and they lose. And the whole time on the bench, Kobe is sitting there going, no independence, no goddamn independence. He's feeling like it's me and a whole bunch of guys who can't match me, right? Mm. And so after the game, Greg Danner, the coach, holds a team meeting, and he goes around the room, and he's pointing at each player, saying, you got you to gotta stop goofing off. You got to be better on defense. You got to do this. You got to do that. And Kobe's nodding right? All along with him, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then finally, for one of the first times in his life, Kobe is the finger turned on him. And it's Downer looks at him and says, and you, Kobe, these, we need the best out of these guys. And you've got to do what needs to be done to get the best out of them. It is hard for them to play with you, right? And to your point, Tim, like, he didn't need, he didn't need Downer to provide the evidence, the evidence was already right. there. They were losing. They had just blown a game that they shouldn't have blown. The evidence is there. And Downer seizes that opportunity to say to Kobe, you got to be better. This, it's going to be better. Trust me if you do this. And he just had the evidence unfold before his very eyes. So, you know, so totally incredible. connection. Yeah, so incredible. And this is then going to sound, this is going to get into the point where listeners are going to feel like, okay, they got together and scripted all this. Because, Phil, your question spurred this little circle of where we're going. And, and then what you just brought up, Mike, is to get back to your original question there, Phil, is so perfectly the next thing, that other anecdote I mentioned is I'm on the sideline in practice waiting for the practice to get over and then guys stream into the weight room and we get after post-practice lifts and everything. Practice is not due to be over for another 45 minutes, maybe an hour at least. So I'm thinking, okay, I, I get a chance to catch my breath here. Let's, let's just catch some practice minutes and, uh, or just watch and, and here we go. And suddenly Kobe throws the ball. He, he stops practice and Mitch Kupchak was on the sideline there watching practice as well. He storms off as he's storming off. He's screaming, Mitch, they're Charmin. They're Charmin. They're soft like Charmin. And we had, to your point, Phil, just been collecting these number two, number three, number six draft picks of 19, 20, 21-year-olds and guys that had potential but hadn't figured out how to be pushed to tap into it, hadn't had somebody to hold their feet to the coals. And that in that moment is what Kobe's method and strategy of that was to let's not mince words here. Let's let's, this is what I am seeing from you. And this is, this is how I'm going to tell you. And Kobe ended practice. And all of a sudden I was back in the weight room working out guys who didn't know what had just happened to them or even how to respond to the legend of their 
generation telling them they were soft as Charmin, but that's how he, he at that moment lit a fire under them and tried to teach them what it is to, to get this done. That's amazing. I mean, that's, you know, there's a direct line there, right? Totally. I mean, that, totally. You know, and that's that all his teammates talk about that in high school about yeah. you had to match his level of intensity. You had to, you had to be at the same pitch. And if you weren't, there was going to be hell to pay. He was going to pay yes. the basketball at you. Yes. He was going to, you know, in a rebounding drill, he's going to push the best jump shooter on the team into the wall to get the rebound. Right. And, you know, Dan Pangrazio, his friend, and his, and his, Dan's going to get a gigantic gash on his arm and have to get stitches. <laughs> he's not going to bitch. He's not going to complain because Kobe's willing to do anything he has to do, and you better be too. Totally. It's totally. TD, it's interesting when we have we have Bobby on the show that he said that Meta World Peace kind of was <laughs> probably has never indulged anyone in his life, right? And, and doesn't suffer fools or foolishness of any kind. And so he told Bobby when he came to the Lakers for the first of those three and a half, four seasons, basically don't let him get away with anything, right? Like if he's doing something stupid, call him on it. And Bobby is a, you know, he's a big old guy, right? I mean, what was he at then, like, size-wise? He's yeah, not a, Robert Sacre, I mean, he's 6'11", 270, right? And, and, and that's where Meta's point was. You can't, and, and Meta learned this, that the way to Kobe's heart and to, to where he would bring you in and, and say, I want you in my foxhole was to stand up when he was going to keep pushing, keep pushing. Who's going to stand up when I call you soft, like Charmin, who's going to come to me and say, that's bullshit, man. We are not. And, and maybe, maybe we could be better, but help us show us what we need. And that was, that was coach downers point in that meeting is you have to step up and find, you can't just tell them you have to show them, you have to bring them with you. And that happened for Kobe over time, but that was probably an eye-opener in that locker room that you described, Mike. Yeah, and 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 by the time he ends up with the Lakers, in some ways it's it's gone again because, right. you know, he comes into that team. I mean, it's crazy to think about. It. He comes into that team that has Shaquille, that's just acquired Shaquille O'Neal, that has Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones and Cedric Sabalos, Sabalos and in the last chapter of the book, it's it's kind of a microcosm of his first season. He is mother effing Del Harris because he thinks that Del Harris is benching him out of spite. That's right. like we could we could win the NBA championship if he would just let me do everything I used to do in high school, and he right. won't do it. Right. And it doesn't occur to him that it's like, dude, you're 18, and yeah. there's Shaquille O'Neal and all these other proven veterans, and you know, you need to learn a little bit does not factor into his thinking at all. And, you know, I think that to your point, TD, that's, that's, it was a stop and start and relearn and relearn at that stage of his life, you know, over and over again. There's an episode. Yeah. yeah, There's an episode in his career that you've spoken to TD. And I believe maybe it was against the Utah jazz and the ball comes out to him and he airballs a three and someone rebounds it. And it goes back to him, and he, you know, air balls or front rims another three, and maybe there was even a third, third by the cherry, and he doesn't get it done. Um, Mike, was there anything in his background that steeled him for the amount of media (laughs) crap that he got through that, you know, the 
a lot of players would have hung their head and said, well, that every all the doubters are right. I'm never going to make it, you know, but this is a different different individual with a different mindset. Were the things other than having his friend yell at him while they're out on the playground doing drills, what was there in his in his makeup, in his background, in the challenges that he so actively sought out earlier on, many years before this this point, and these air balls in the play in a pivotal playoff game that allowed him to not only bounce back from that, but rededicate himself to his craft and think, man, this is never this is never going to happen again to me or this team. So when he's eleven or twelve years old. Um... And he's still, um, the family's still living in Italy most of the year, but they're coming back to the Philadelphia area in the summertime. The first, the first summer that he's eligible, Kobe signs up to play in the Sunny Hill League, which was the premier summer basketball league for teenage talent in and around Philly. And he goes scoreless the entire summer. He doesn't hit a free throw. He doesn't hit a layup, a gimme layup in a game that's already decided. Nothing. He does not score. Now, he's playing up an age level or two, but still, no points. I was there the night of his last game in Philadelphia, December 1st, 2015, and somebody asked him about memorable things, motivations. He cited that summer. He said, that was, I was embarrassed. I had shamed my family. I had shamed my father. I had shamed my uncle, Chubby Cox, who was a great Philadelphia player and, you know, great college player and played professionally. And I was never going to let that happen again. And so that's one aspect to it, that he mm. kind of experienced that as a young, young kid. And I think the other aspect of it, too, is that that half of himself that came from his mom, who mm. suffered no fools, who knew what she expected out of people and demanded that she be treated a certain way. You know, she's jogging through Italy and somebody cat calls her. And, you know, here was a woman in her, you know, late twenties, early thirties looks like Diana Ross and she gets a cat call from somebody in Italy and she curses the guy off. Like it's nothing like, don't you do that to me? Don't you treat me that way? And he gets that aspect of, you know, his parents' personality, you know, Joe Bryant, somebody once wrote of Joe Bryant, he had two minutes for everybody and two hours for nobody. Kobe was not that. Kobe yeah. was the two-hour guy. If you were in his foxhole, like Tim said, yep. he would give you the two hours. And that's Pam. That's Pam. Wow. And so I think, to answer your question, I don't even think it was so much that he had experienced that much media when he was young, so that when he got to the Lakers, he knew how to handle it because he had been through so much. That was certainly the case his senior year of high school. By the time they've won the state championship and he's taken Brandy to the prom and he's you know, the biggest basketball star in the Philadelphia area and one of the biggest stars in the country. Yeah, he's handled it then. But but long before that, he's just, he kind of expects that this is what's ahead for me and I got to be able to deal with it. There's an anecdote about him at Myrtle Beach, you know, 7,000 people in the in the convention center and they all want his autograph. And he's like, yeah, this is what's going to happen to me. You know, I'm mm. going to be on TV. People are going to want my autograph. This comes with the territory. Yeah, it's a trade-off, and it was almost validating for him. Is like, if I don't have this, then I'm doing something wrong here. Exactly, exactly. It's, right. it, this is such a cool conversation for me because it's it's going back, and and I this happened for me as I was reading the book, but the the conversation brings it out further. And and Phil, we had such a great conversation with Steve Blake about many things, but one of the things, and and Mike, you'll appreciate this, is my lens and my view of how Steve and Kobe 
how the relationship was is Kobe absolutely had Steve in his foxhole and meta the same way. And there was now thinking to what Steve said. And, and I asked Steve to talk a little bit about that. And Steve said, look, I knew I could question him. I didn't mind question. If Kobe was wrong, I was going to tell him if Kobe, but Kobe always knew that I was going to deliver, that I was going to give my all in every moment. And so I think those two things come together for how he, you start to look at players that he did really gravitate towards or keep around him when he, during his playing years and that kind of thing. And those were the ones back to Jean Mastriano where she wasn't, she maybe instilled some of that of this is, and I'm sure many people instilled and he had this naturally and it's all multifactorial, but that idea that she didn't want a yes man from, and that's why Kobe being that way was so great for her, but that's one of the ways that Kobe graded and, and filtered people to him. Yeah. And he could compartmentalize too, right? Like, yeah, you know, Greg Downer, for instance, this is one of the, the, I still shake my head at this. I think it was Phil asked me earlier, what shocked me? Here was something that shocked me. Right. Greg Downer, Kobe never told Greg Downer that he was jumping to the NBA. Never told him explicitly. Kobe says that on the tapes, and Downer told me that in an interview. And it was almost like, I hesitate to use this phrase, but it was almost like kind of like, coach, know your place. Your job is to make me a better basketball player, and I respect the hell out of you for that, and I love you forever, and you will come work my camps, and I will come back to Lower Marion as long as you are there. But know your place. And I'm not telling you this. You know, right. told other people, you know, and it's right. It boggles my mind. But like up until the moment that he says, I'm taking my talent to the NBA, Greg Downer is pretty sure Kobe's going to the NBA, but Kobe's never told him that. And that's yeah. that blew my mind. But Insane. that's the compartmentalization yes. we're talking about. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go back, Mike, to one of my, my favorite parts of both the podcast and the book. And there were these breadcrumbs, as we talked about a little bit ago in this conversation, it was hard for GMs or talent evaluators to really get the glimpses of how am I going to great judge this kid who doesn't just appear like a Kevin Garnett and, and maybe there's something there, maybe not, I'm not sure, but there were breadcrumbs and that's the summer of 95 where he had a chance to, to play in, in and around some NBA level players. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. So the Sixers coach at the time was John Lucas, um, who had a daughter, has a daughter, Tarvia, who was a classmate of Kobe's. So Lucas goes and sees Kobe play in a playoff game and is totally enamored with him as a player. Um, and entering the summer of 1995, he invites Kobe to scrimmage, play pickup with, work out with the Sixers and all these other NBA players and high-level Division I guys who play pickup every day at St. Joseph's University in the Fieldhouse. And so Kobe goes there. And if you're in the Philadelphia area or you follow Kobe's career, these stories have become the stuff of myth and apocrypha right. because Jerry Stackhouse was involved in them too. He was a year into his career with the Sixers and Stack had been the number three overall pick in the 95 draft. He was supposed to be the Sixers savior. And you hear all these things about Kobe totally took it to Stack and dumped on him every day and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't nearly so one-sided. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not nearly so. But Kobe held his own and then some. And that summer, and we're talking about playing against guys like Rick Mahorn, 
Vernon Maxwell, Aaron McKee, Sean Bradley, Sharon Wright, Willie Burton. You know, if you remember the 90s NBA, yeah. you remember these names. And he is right there with these guys as a 16, 17 year old. And that's all it takes for him. He's like, look, this is all I need to know. You know, yeah. I don't need to go to college. If I'm holding my own against these guys, if I'm outplaying them most of the time, then I can make the jump. And that's it. And that summer cinches it. He's not going to Duke. He's not going to LaSalle. He's not going to Kentucky. He doesn't visit an, a, a college university. He never visits Duke, ever. Never goes right. to Kentucky. But Rick Pitino tries to get him to visit Kentucky, and he ends up inviting Greg Downer instead. Downer goes for a weekend, but Kobe doesn't go, like, <laughs> because he knows he's going to the NBA. Oh my gosh. Who, who, Mike, who was the name? And I think this is quoted from Kobe after he graded himself. Maybe Arn Tellum was asking him how those two workouts at the Inglewood YMCA goes when, and, and he, Kobe basically ends up telling Arn to take a chill pill because he, he graded himself as it, it went incredible. Oh, I dominated one of the workouts. For, yeah. That was after yeah. one of the workouts for Jerry West. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Separate situation, but sort of same mindset yep. of, of he just, Totally took it to Michael Cooper. No big deal. And what did you think I was going to do? The guy was 40 years old. I mean, get him yeah. out of here. And Arn, take a chill pill. Yeah, 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 take a chill pill. And then the other side, though, I think Kobe was kind of quoted as saying, imagine if I did go to college because I, I, I in one of those uh, workouts, he, I think he went up against the Mississippi state player. Dante who, Jones. Yes. Who had just led his team to the final four and he's like dominating him. I would have dominated. He, yeah. He, he I, just it, said, imagine me at college. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just it. And that, you know, that brings back to where we began with the personal end of things about what if he'd gone to LaSalle, you know, yeah. oh my gosh, could you oh imagine, et cetera, et cetera. It just would have been incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, incredible. David Epstein's become a pretty good friend over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I interviewed him for a, a series on youth sport that um, TD was involved in as well. Well, it has your name on it, TD, but we I'd say we, we worked on it together. You, it's your words. I just put them on the page. But <laughs> anyway, so Dave wrote a great book. You know, people know him for the sports gene and they know him for co-writing the SI piece that kind of broke the A-Rod PED scandal. But yep. his book Range, his most recent book, he spent, you know, six years on, I think, um, and is mm -hmm. excellent. And he uses a term, I believe, if I'm not going to butcher it, called the network effect, which is we should be encouraging kids to dabble, right? And he uses the Federer example and other athletes who have, you know, and the Mannings would be another one. I'm not sure if they're in the book, but played a lot of sports, did a lot of different extracurriculars and finally settled on football. So they did specialize, but it was late. With Kobe, mm -hmm. TD's talked about his ability and love for playing the piano. Um, you know, you've mentioned that maybe or alluded to that English was certainly one of his favorite, if not his favorite subjects. He loved stories. He loved vacuuming up books left and right. Um, what kind of network effect do you think there was from the arts, from literature, from music, from culture that kind of fed into basketball and his approach? I think it was, uh, it was strong. I mean, he was a terrific student. He liked yeah. learning. There's an anecdote in the book where he's talking to one of Lower Marion's assistant coaches, Mike Egan, and he's getting a math tutor just to do better in math. And he says to Egan, this shit is fun. Like, he doesn't look at it like it's a burden. He looks at it like, I'm going to be better at math once, once this tutor is finished with me, and that's great. That's a feather in my cap. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, uh, it was funny, I actually sent this in an email to somebody earlier today. I think about it in these terms, Phil. 
When I sit down to write, I like to have music or a podcast going because I need something to focus my attention on writing against. Mm. I can't have it completely quiet in the room while I'm writing. If I'm going to do my best work, I need something else going on so that I can kind of turn, like be aware of it, but turn away from it. And I wonder if something is at play with respect to Kobe and a Federer and the Mannings in the same kind of way on a macro scale. Like you need to, to know these other things, whether they are the arts or math or soccer or music or whatever the case may be so that it helps you focus on the thing that you need to do or want to do most. Wow, so it's almost like holding something in creative opposition then while also yes. creating the conditions for a flow state because we know right. from Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel and others, you know, the rise of Superman goes into this um, and, and Kotler's subsequent work of, you know, find a soundtrack that's uniquely your own and kind of conducive to dropping you into yes. a flow state. And so, um, yeah, that's a really interesting I, point of holding, almost kind of holding paradox creatively. I, I read Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi yes. when I was sure. in college. I read it again in writing this book, and I make it's in the bibliography for a reason, and wow. because Kobe embodied it. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and the Flow stuff that start with that one, and then then people should move on to the rise of Superman because Kotler obviously. Yeah looks at it both through group flow, you know, why is it if a group of snowboarders get together, suddenly they're doing, you know, these amazing flip spins tricks that, that people individually haven't been able to do for the 20 years beforehand. And then also, you know, high consequence environments, I guess you could say as well, in mm -hmm. terms of a flow state. Um, if you're talking about a lead Hamilton, say, or more recently, yeah. you know, with free solo and Alex Honnold. So that's a really, in that's interesting that, um, you kind of drop back into your your flow research and um, that flow state mm -hmm. idea. Tim, with flow, obviously, it has to be unitasking while also doing what Mike has mentioned sometimes. So you've got your music or whatever external conditions or the, lo the same location, in this case, the Lakers weight room or the practice court as well, that, that you can have that creative tension almost what did you see firsthand with Kobe on that front of both the laser-like focus, but also him creating similar conditions, whether that's the same meal or the same snack or the same, you know, some, somewhat predictability so that then there could be novelty and creativity once he hit the court come game time. Well, I think with Kobe's recipe for that, of, of achieving that, it was a couple of ingredients and what he would do, for example, he would, have the dropkick Murphy. He wanted me to play the dropkick Murphy's to uh, in the weight room at while he lifted as we, but we only put the, that on to, we only put that on as we got close to the playoffs. So then he's thinking, and this is the song that you're always hearing in the Boston, in the TD bar garden at during their games, regular season or playoffs, but that's what he brought himself back to. So those kinds of things he would find to your point, Mike, the sort of piece that he needed, he needed to focus on the weights, but that bounced off of the, the pressure from that other thing out there, pushed him into what he was focused on. Then I think it was really just this idea of him having to the ability to compartmentalize everything all the time and put himself into that moment. Not everything else could just be whatever it was, that tunnel that he was in, he could go there so easily. And 
I think he would also have, he also had this, this ability to have a routine and a habit and he knew what it was and it was clockwork for him. So those three ingredients were, were really, really powerful for him. Mike, I know you were, we're getting up towards the end of what your time looks like in it for the, for the afternoon. Guys, this has been awesome. I could keep so going good. for another two hours. Well, we'll we'll Anytime do a part two. Back on, I would I would love uh, it. Oh, uh, we'll do a part two. But I do want to just ask the famous last question, if if you don't mind. And so sure. this is the Basketball Strong podcast. What we ask at the end is something that we want you to answer from your heart, your gut, your mind. It can go spiritual, technical, whatever you want, whatever comes to mind. But the question is, what does it mean to you to be basketball strong? That's a really good question. What does it mean to be basketball strong? For my, for me and my line of work, yes, it means that I am doing everything I possibly can to tell a story or present my perspective on a given new situation in an honest, full, and entertaining and intellectually honest way. Um, if that makes sense. Um, I try very hard not to um, come by, shortcut my opinions and shortcut my insights. I want to do the work. I, I'm always trying to push myself in that way. And that's, that's basketball for me is, is, you know, a book like this, I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. Um, when it comes to writing a column, I want to know as much as I possibly can know about a given situation before I weigh in on whether I don't know, the Sixers should trade Ben Simmons or not uh, before the deadline. Um, and that to me is what it means. It means I've done the legwork. I've done my homework. I've gotten to the gym at 6 a.m. before the faculty members and the principal. And the yes. Students, and I'm, I've got my work in and now I'm ready to perform. I love that. And there's so many parallels to the mama mentality and how Kobe, really his standards of what he left. And, and as you said, that's that is sort of the way that there's just so many ways that you could connect that to any profession, any industry, any craft that you're doing and no stone unturned is what you said. And that, that is mama mentality. That is basketball strong. You've, you've, you've produced a basketball strong piece here. It's incredible. You have to read the book. You have to listen to the podcast. The book is The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. The, the podcast is I Am Kobe. It's You will binge it. You will not be able to stop it. So good. But Mike, tell people where they can find it, where they can follow you, and, and where they can get more. All right. So if you, if you want the book, you can find the book at theriseofkobebook.com. That'll take you to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere you want to get the book. It's also available in Target and Costco. So if you need like a new washer and dryer, 18 pounds of bacon and a book, you know where to go. Okay. (laughs) So there's that. Uh, The podcast is anywhere you get your podcasts. The shortest way to go to get to it is go to KobeBryantPodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Mike Sealski, M-I-K-E-S-I-E-L-S-K-I. Same thing on Instagram and, uh, or look at the Philadelphia Inquirer's website. You'll see my column archive there. So, so good. Yeah. Be ready for part two. This is, we're going to do this again. This it's, was a blast. It's been a true Anytime, gift, Mike. guys. Thank you so much. Anytime. I would just name the day. I'll bring the digital virtual beer. We'll be good to go.
Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong.